0: So we're we're very very delighted. Like he flew in from Australia yesterday, so he's jet lagged to his eyeballs. That won't make any difference at all, I promise. <laughs> he is always lucid <laughs> and very sharp. Um, just before he just before he comes to speak, <clears throat> uh, you may know some of you that in 1948, uh, a couple of shepherd boys. Uh, in Palestine were uh, fl- playing around and they were throwing stones around and accidentally they made a stunning discovery uh, in some clay pots on a hillside they discovered what became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls and that uh, those documents alone cast a whole lot of light on the culture in which Christianity and Jesus's culture and Christianity emerged and um, mm not quite on the same scale, but archivists in the vineyard have uh, recently been doing some research and and they came across a fascinating... uh, It's actually a video clip which will cast light on the history of the vineyard in the UK in a very interesting way.
1: I I know that a number of people think that I should... Be the leader of the vineyard movement in this country, but I, I had to say I had to say uh, to John wimber, no, no no, john i can 't do that. Uh, give it to someone else, and he said well there 's no one else we don 't we don't know anyone who who could do it and, and, and he said well we 're going to have to to choose people who i 'll have to get someone who who isn 't as good as you who isn't and I said, well uh, just oh no, i can 't believe oh no I, that's so embarrassing. We're going to do something That's all, Can you cut this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, don't you even...
0: <laughs>
1: it's, uh, <laughs> it's great. I was being interviewed for a, a video this afternoon. And I saw out of the corner of my eye. I'm going to have to explain this, otherwise they're going to wonder. No, I'm explaining it. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Ellie walk in. And so I pretended I didn't notice and was saying how, all that. And, and then and then as I was pretending that I just noticed Ellie and how embarrassing that she should be there, then they said, we're going to use it this evening. And that's where they cut. So um, um, I actually need to say, far, far from... Uh, um, uh, being, you know, turning down John Wimber's offer of uh, leading the Vineyard Movement in the UK. I, I, actually, I actually come here with a lot of hurt uh, that has been given to me by the Vineyard Movement. Um, and uh, I, I just feel a little bit of therapy before I start. I've actually been rejected by the Vineyard Movement three times. Um, uh, uh, the first time it was by Chris Lane. Um, who, when he went to start the Snorbans St. Vineyard, I was going to go and help him. And then he said to me, no, uh, you, you stay at St Andrew's Chorley Wood and be the youth worker. And then when we planted our church in Watford, I, I, I went to John Mumford and I said, do you think we should become a vineyard? And he said, no, stay in the Church of England. Uh, and, and then we had... Um, uh, what's his name? Kermit the... Uh, Steve Nicholson. <laughs> Steve... <laughs> we had, we had, <laughs> you didn't hear that bit, uh, edit it, well he is, isn't he, but anyway, we had Steve Nicholson came, and I said to Steve, you know, just wondering, we're vineyard, what? I called him one of my closest friends, did you not hear? That's- so, Steve Nicholson, one of my closest friends, and, uh, I think I've got away with it, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I said, you know, I was, we were wondering about maybe we should join, join the Vineyard. And he said, no, 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 you should stay in the Anglican Church. So three times. So I'm not asking again. Oh, don't patronize me. Uh, so, uh, no, ser- seriously, it's, uh, it's a, a privilege and a joy to be here. And uh, the reason uh, uh, I tried to join the Vineyard three times uh, is because um, uh, uh, in deep down, uh, that's who I am, and uh, the values and the ethos and the heart. Uh, we, the rest of the church, uh, owe so much uh, to the Vineyard Movement. And uh, if I can say one thing without getting sentimental, and I'm Greek, so we'd get sentimental, uh, um, it, it is just, just, just keep, keep doing what you're doing. And keep blessing the rest of the church as well as the world, because the rest of the church needs you uh, to to continue to be who you are and to bless and encourage the rest of us. Anyway, I um, I, I've I've been asked to talk. Um, I hope I've got this right about um, something to do with vision. I think is the theme, and um, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to to base what well, I'm saying uh, uh, loosely on uh, the book of Nehemiah. And I say loosely because you'll discover as I talk, it's going to be very loosely. Um, and uh, 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 as everyone would have said already, uh, uh, vision is at the heart of, you know, God speaks to us and we obey. And that's basically what vision is. Uh, vision is hearing from God vision is seeing from God. A, a visionary is very, it's very simply someone who sees something first, someone who sees something further. And when you see something at the beginning, often you're the only person to see it because you're the first person. And that's where it gets lonely. Because as, uh, uh, when, you, when God gives you a vision, at the beginning, often other people can't see it. And when other people can't see it, anyone ever been a leader? And, uh, and then they start saying, are you sure? I can't see it. I don't think it's there. I think you got it wrong. Or no, 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 we can't. How can we get enthusiastic about something that we can't see? Well, let, let's sit with what we can see. You, you, can, you can start to doubt yourself. You can start to doubt, did, did I really see it? Is it really there? Or you can start thinking, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I just got it wrong. Or maybe it's just easier to stay where we are. And uh, it's at that point, it's at that point that we need God to touch our heart and not just speak to our mind. Because if he doesn't touch our heart, it's at that point that we give up. And this is exactly what happened with Nehemiah. And uh, in in chapter 1, we see Nehemiah um, was part of the exile. Uh, He was serving as cupbearer to King Ataxerxes in the citadel of Susa. And uh, uh, his brother Hanani uh, paid him a visit, as you do, from Jerusalem. And Hanani and some others, they were part of the remnant that stayed in Jerusalem. And uh, Nehemiah begins his story by recounting uh, how Hanani and the others came and told him about the terrible situation Jerusalem was in. He says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And then Nehemiah responds. This is Nehemiah's call to ministry. This is Nehemiah's call to service. And he says, and I quote, When I heard these things, I formed a fundraising committee and started a marketing drive. No, he didn't. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed. And the first thing I want to suggest to you this evening is a true call from God, a true call to ministry, a true call to service, a true biblical vision has to begin in some way with weeping. Because God breaks your heart with the things that break his heart. Uh, You see, Nehemiah heard the facts. He heard the stuff. Many others would have heard it. But at that point for Nehemiah, something happened in him. And if God doesn't begin by breaking your heart, if God doesn't begin by sharing his heart and not just his words with you, then when the going gets tough, you give up. But when you can't help it, when it lives in you, when God breaks you, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed. He stayed there for a while. He allowed the vision to gestate. It wasn't simply call to Christian ministry. It's not about seeing a gap in the spiritual market and thinking, yeah, I could do that for a season. It is not a career move. You do it because you have to. You know, I've I, I planted two churches in my life. The first one was a disaster, and I hope I learned from the first one uh, for the second one. And I tell you, it is, it is flipping exhausting, isn't it? Don't plant a church unless you have to. <laughs> you have to when God breaks your heart for those who are not in any church. When God shows you his heart for the lost and the broken. And then you have to. And then when you share his heart, when the going gets tough, you keep going. The best, the best way to get longevity in ministry is to start right. And this is what Nehemiah did. And then after he mourned and fasted and prayed for a while, he prayed a magnificent prayer. And there's so many things in this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. But I just want, I just want to focus in on one thing. Um, uh, he, well, he starts off actually by saying, oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. That's a great way to start praying. And, and if I had been Nehemiah and God had shown me the terrible situation of Jerusalem, uh, I would have begun my prayer with words like this, Lord, great and awesome are the problems, let me tell you about them. But even though God has broken his heart... He sees beyond the issues and he says, oh Lord, the great and awesome God, because I'm going to look up and I'm going to look to you. And that's the second thing that has to happen. You know, if you, if you just get a vision about the, uh, God's call on your life, but you don't get a vision of the Lord, you're in trouble. If you don't get a vision that shows you that the Lord is bigger, you're in trouble. But then Nehemiah uh, says these things. Uh, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Listen to this. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, everything we know about Nehemiah suggests he was a righteous dude. He was a good guy. He He lived an upright life. God blessed him and it would have been so easy for nehemiah to have prayed this prayer i confess the sins they have committed against you they have acted very wickedly towards you they have not obeyed your commands your laws or your decrees what does nehemiah do he identifies with the people he doesn't start apart and do ministry from a distance he does the biblical thing uh he he identifies he gets involved from the beginning in his heart and that's the that's the next thing that that we have to do if we're gonna survive and thrive in leadership uh we're not doing ministry at people we're 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 serving them and we're doing ministry with them and we are part of them and they are part of us i suppose you could say it's the principle of incarnation you know (laughs) Emmanuel, God with us. God didn't open a window in heaven and shout down, I love you. He came himself. He came himself. And we cannot serve people from a distance. We cannot do ministry from a distance. But then Nehemiah, once he's prayed and he's done business with God, then going, once he's been to the king of kings, going to the king is easy. He goes to Ataxerxes and he gets permission to leave uh, Susa and go to Jerusalem. And uh, uh, I got this from a commentary somewhere, a little bit of semi-useless information. The journey from the citadel of Susa in Babylon to Jerusalem on a camel of average speed would have, <laughs> would have taken three and a half months. What does that tell us? That tells us that Nehemiah burnt his bridges. He wasn't dabbling on the sidelines. You know what? I'll try this. And if it doesn't work, I'll go back to the day job. You know, three and a half months to get there, and then if it didn't work out, another three and a half months to get back. I suspect King Ataxerxes would have filled the vacancy by the time Nehemiah returned. And you know, there's something when God speaks to you, when God shows you his heart, when God calls you, when God gives you a vision that is God-given, there is something about burning your bridges. There is about something about saying there is no plan B at the very least in your heart. Twenty years ago, um, eleven of us uh, went to Watford to plant a church because we wanted to reach particularly young people who 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 weren't going to anybody's church and I remember the first week when we met there was 11 of us in someone's front room and then the second week when we met there was 11 of us and then I was thinking next week there's going to be 11 of us why would anyone want to join us I looked at the others and I thought we're in trouble and then I thought next month there'll be 11 of us and then in six months there'll there'll be 10 of us because one of us will have died you know and (laughs) and anyone ever anyone ever done a been involved in a church plant. You know, I remember there was one week when we had 17 and there were three new people in the one week. And I went, I went home and I couldn't sleep that night. I knew revival was just about to break. I just knew it. And I I was going to write my book revival and my part in it and all of that stuff. And then the following week, the following week, we were down to 11 because the three new ones didn't come back and a couple of the others had fallen out and I was ready to kill myself. I was ready. It's all gone wrong. Nothing's going to work. This is going to be a failure. It's at those points. It's at that time that if God, if you haven't done thee, sat down and wept for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed. That's the time when you'll quit. That's the time when you walk away. And that's why, that's why we need to ha- let God do the business in our hearts before we go anywhere else well then then Nehemiah he burnt his bridges, he arrived in Jerusalem, and you know what he did he didn 't announce to the people his vision straight away and the mistake lots of us make is is sometimes we uh, we share we share vision uh, before it's, uh, before it 's settled in us and and that 's the mistake i 've often made because i 'm an impulsive person, you know I think something One minute, and I've done it. The next, and then I repent at leisure. And I've spent most of my life repenting at leisure about various impulsive decisions that I've made. And you know, my team say to me now, count to ten, please count to ten. And and there's all sorts of things now that that they insist that I'm not allowed to do until I've consulted them, uh, which we should have been like that from the beginning. But but do you know Nehemiah? He waited. He waited until the vision gestated. You know, if, if, if you give birth prematurely, the baby can be sick and sometimes die. And if you give birth to a vision prematurely, the same thing can happen. Nehemiah uh, did a recce of the joint. He went round, he looked. And then when the time was right, he gathered the people together and then he shared the vision. He shared the vision with them, and we read this in uh, chapter 2. And I just want to read part of this. We're just skimming through Nehemiah uh, because of the time. I actually can't see the clock from... Oh, there, there it is. I'm all right. Okay. Because um, the lights are not clear, can you just give me a little shout when I've got five minutes to go? Um, and then I'll take ten. That's um, no, a joke. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I mean, seeing as I'm not in the vineyard, I'm not under the authority of the vineyard, am I?
0: <laughs> you wouldn't
1: have me. I'm going to wreck your leaders' conference. Uh, then, so I'm joking <laughs> half. Anyway, then, <laughs> then in the, um, listen, if if you laugh, it just encourages me, and then. <laughs> Listen, listen, settle down. Then he says, this is how he shares the vision. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. That's how he begins to share the vision. If you stop and think about it, that's a ridiculous way to start sharing a vision. Apart from the fact that it's negative. And you go to any leadership seminar and they tell you, don't start with a negative. And secondly, he's telling them what's obvious. Nehemiah, you've just turned up from Babylon, from the citadel of Susa, and we have lived here all our lives. We face the broken walls every day. We see that the gates have been burned with fire every day. Why was he telling them what they had lived in? He was telling them, because when you live in that place for a long time, you no longer see the problem. You get used to the problem. And sometimes, you know, we have to be truth tellers. Sometimes we have to say, this is what it looks like. We've just got complacent. Sometimes we have to say, you know, actually, that... The church in this country isn't what it's meant to be. Actually, this is the state of our nation. Actually, this is how it is. Sometimes we have to say it as it is. Because when we live in a place for so long, the abnormal becomes normal. And so Nehemiah begins by saying, this is the situation. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. And then he issues the call, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, there's two bits to that. First of all, he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now, on one level, it's like you're calling us to a building project. Big deal. Big deal. I can't get enthusiastic by build, a building project. But then he says what the real part is, what the real reason, that we may no longer be in disgrace. There's a reason for this building project. It's not about a building project. It's about reaching the lost. It's not about a building project. It's about serving the community around us. We're doing this for this. And for Nehemiah, the punch was: the punch was, guys, we're in disgrace. This is this is God's holy city. This is this is the city that God gave us. And look at the state of it. It's not about rebuilding the walls. It's about God's glory. This it's about being a light on a hill. It's about something deeper. And so often when we share vision, the danger can be we share the practical and we, don't, we forget to share the, the, the big picture behind it. And then he says, why do it now? He gives his testimony. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And so he's saying, first of all, this is why we've got to do it. But now, this is why we've got to do it now. This is what this is our story. This is what the Lord said. This is how the Lord has brought me to this place. And then the people said, "Let us rise up and build. Let us start rebuilding." So they began the good work. Now, there's this. We all know there's 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 lots of different kinds of people in our churches. But they, I think we can divide them roughly into, into two kinds when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, there's the pioneers and then there's the settlers. Uh, there's the pioneers and then there's what, what some would call the homesteaders. And uh, I'm, I'm by nature a pioneer. Um, I love, I love, so when I get to ShareVision, I talk about the big picture. It's like, can you see it? Can you see what it looks like? And I, I don't do detail. I hate, loathe, and despise detail. Detail is boring. I, I say the big picture. And do you know, the pioneers in my church, all I have to do is say, I have a dream. And they're, and they're there, we have a dream with you, Mike. And it's like, yes, the dream is that we conquer the universe. And we do it by tomorrow night. And they say, yes, let's start. Let's do it. Now Now, the pioneers in my church... Uh, When we started the church, we were nearly all pioneers. But now, 20 years later, I'd say about 20% of us are pioneers. And do you know what happens to the other 80% when I'm sharing my vision in that way? They start going, oh, here he goes again. Oh, no, it's it's another vision a day. And uh, he'll have forgotten it by tomorrow. Don't don't worry, don't worry. He'll have forgotten it. We'll we'll be on to something else in three weeks' time. And and they'll give each other little knowing knowing looks. And and I've realized realized that I can't can't share the vision on my own. Uh, Because I have have accountants in my church. And accountants, by definition, are boring human beings. And... (laughs) And accountants, by definition, uh, they 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 want they want something so unspiritual like detail, and so I get one of my colleagues up, who's an ex-accountant, who's one of the pastors in our church, and then do you know what he does? He then gives them pieces of paper with numbers and diagrams, and they love that, and they're colour coded, and then he says, now, 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 let's just go through this line by line. You see, this is stage one. And then what we're going to do is this. And and this is how it works. And and has anyone got any questions? That's a very good question. Now, let's look at that. Now, we think we're going to do this. And I've fallen asleep after five minutes. I'm like comatose. I'm like, somebody kill me. And... (laughs) And, and rescue me, but you know they 're all sitting on this they 're all looking at their papers and they get collecting them, and they go home and they study them, and then they send each other messages and you know, and you know it takes a lot longer to get them in sometimes it takes them a long time, but you know what i 've discovered when they 're on board, oh boy, they stay on board, and they stay on board w- way after i 'm ready to move on to the next vision it 's like. It's like I'm bored now. We've talked about it, and they say unreasonable things like, "Yeah, we've talked about it. Should we actually do it? Why don't we actually do it?" And it's like, but that involves details and work and stuff like that. You know, one thing I've realised is we need each other and we need every kind of person because the boring people. Are, I, I I tell you, and it, it's it it. it, it it's like, I, I, I love getting together. I've got two friends, uh, Roy Crown and Andy Hawthorne, and, and they're old youth workers like me. One of them's been running uh, Youth for Christ for years, and he's stopped now, and he does something else called Hope. And Andy is this crazy loony in Manchester who is an evangelist and everything. And when we get together for coffee, we love it because, because we're all visionaries, the three of us. So we, we, say, we get together, and one of us says, I've got, I've got a vision. And the other two, really, tell us your vision. Go on. And one of us says it, and the other two get excited. And then the second person says his vision. And then we get excited, and we go round, And we could spend the whole morning. And then the next morning, we could get together, and we could have three different visions. And we could do that all our lives. And, and I've, realized, I've realized that if, if, if anything is going to come into reality, I need to have a team with me that do the things that I can't do. And that means I have to find people to be on my team. The thing I always look for to be to be team with me are people who are like me, because it's fun. It's fun to be with other visionaries, because you just. But nothing ever gets done. And all my life, I've hated, loathed, and despised um, administrators. Um, in fact, I've always regarded them as the spawn of Satan. And. And it's like the thing I've hated is whenever, no, this is, I'm just being honest with you here. <laughs> whenever, whenever I've, I've, I've shared my vision with them, do you know, they do all the boring stuff. They say, well, how are we going to do that? How's that going to, and then everything me wants to say, and I do, I have said to them, I've said, how about we have a little bit of faith? How about how we trust God? And then they roll their eyes and all of that stuff. And you know what? I used to hate them. I've realized I can't do without them because they're the people that make it happen. Uh, when, when we first started, I, I worked with a guy that used to be in my youth group called Matt Redman who got bored with doing ministry and became a singer instead. And uh, and, uh and, and, and Matt was different to me, and and so so often I would be the one that would just have a, have a dream, and Matt would always ask the questions, and we used to argue about that. And there was one time when I met a, a worship leader called Kevin Prosh, and uh, a terrible mistake, uh, Kevin and I went for an Indian meal, this was 20 years ago, 21 years ago, on our own. and uh, And then I came back the next day, and this was when there was about, I don't know, uh, 23 in our church. And I came back and the next day I said to Matt, I said, Hey Matt, um, I, I've, 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 um, Kevin's going to come in, in a month's time and, uh, and, uh, uh, lead worship in our church. And Matt looked a bit suspicious and he said, does he know that there's 23 in our church? And I said, Oh, I can't remember if I told him. I'm not sure <laughs> if I did. And then he said, and then Matt said, so is he, is he going to, is he going to come on his own? Um, with his guitar, and I said, "No, he's going to bring his band, the Black Peppercorns." And then Matt looked thoughtful and he said, "But there's seven of them in the band," and I said, "Yes," and he said, "But there's 23 in our church. We won't fit in the room." And, and I said, "No, no, no, no. That, that's fine." And he said, "What? They're going to just come and play acoustic?" I said, "No, no. They're going to bring the whole, the, the whole, the whole kit, the whole band." And he said, "For 23 of us?" And then he said. And then he said, it won't fit, it won't work. I said, no, 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 it's all right. We're not going to meet in the room. We're, we're going we're to hire the Colosseum." And Matt said, but the Colosseum holds 2,500 people. And I said, yeah. And he said, but there's 23 of us in the church. And then I looked at Matt, and I said to Matt, how about you trust the Lord? <laughs> and then Matt wandered off, muttering under his breath. Now, I want to tell you, and this is the absolute truth. A month later, Kevin came to the Colosseum. It was full, two and a half thousand people. It was amazing. In the middle of it, I looked at Matt. And I went like this. I went. Now let me tell you. Let me tell you what happened in the intervening four weeks. After I announced to him and told him to have faith, I went home that afternoon and I had to lie down. Because it's exhausting being a visionary. Well, it is. <laughs> Some of you should try it. Um, that's a joke. That's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> uh, and then, and while I was having a lie down, Matt made a whole load of posters and little cards. And then he went to all the Christian bookshops around London personally. He gave them posters. He gave them cards. He printed tickets. He he wrote to loads of churches. And he organized everyone he knew to come and be stewards and to help set up and take down. And he got a little group together to be ministry team. And then the evening came, and we arrived there, and there were two and a half thousand people, and it was wonderful. And if it was left to me, there would have been 23 of us <laughs> plus seven in Kevin's band. And, and someone once said, when, when Matt and I were working closely together like that, he, someone said, do you know, it's like the two of you, they, they said, you're like a car. And Matt, Mike, you're the accelerator. And Matt, you're the brake. And when you think about it, it, it was exactly like that. And the thing is, if you in a car, you just have an accelerator and no brake. You start the car. You set off. And it gets very exciting. <laughs> you go around corners really fast. You whiz down the straight. You go around the other side on two wheels. It's amazing. It is thrilling for about three minutes. And then you die. <laughs> but if you just have the brake and no accelerator, everyone stays safe. No one is in any danger but you never go anywhere. We have to have both. We have to have both. And we need to find folk who, who, who complement us. Don't just find people who are the same as you. Usually it's a disaster uh, because we're, we're deliberately built differently. And isn't that what Paul says to the Corinthians? Can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you? Can the visionary say to the administrator, I don't need you? Can the administrator say to the visionary i don 't need you and we need to we need to to share vision with our team we need to share it regularly we need to share it again and again we need to keep saying it and we need to keep living it and then you know those that get it last are usually the ones that will hold on to it and keep the rest of us accountable to seeing it go through now that 's moved a long way from nehemiah. Um, but I just want to um, actually. What I'll do now is I'll just quickly um, just go through when Nehemiah, when Nehemiah and uh, uh, the people of Israel they started rebuilding the wall, there came uh, three oppositions there came three temptations, there came three attacks. When they got the vision and they began to work, and these three attacks, these three oppositions, in my experience, they always come, and in my experience, they've always come in exactly this order. And in any good story, there's goodies and baddies. And in this story, Nehemiah's the goodie, the baddies are three guys called Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. And uh, uh, when they began to rebuild, here comes the first opposition in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are, to buy the ammonite who was at his side said, "What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones." What's the first attack? The first temptation, the first opposition that always comes at the beginning. They hadn't They just begun to rebuild. The first one, it's the attack of ridicule. Who do you think you are? You think God's going to use you? Have you looked in the mirror recently? And the reason it's so effective at the beginning is you've got nothing to show for it yet. You've just begun. It looks ridiculous. It still seems pretentious. And the enemy starts to undermine us in our minds at that point. Who do you think you are? Now, he knows us. So there's There's specific areas that he will attack each of us, and it's unique. Except there's one area that I think he tries with everyone, and that's this one. Have you ever recognized this? Why would God use you? Do you think God would use you? You don't pray enough. Isn't that one that we all get at at times? And the reason that's so brilliant is how much is enough? How much is enough? Well, I I pray for 10 minutes every day. 10 minutes? 10 minutes. You give God 10 minutes and you expect God to use you to make a difference in your town, in your city, in your, in in your, wherever it is. You, you think God's going to use you when you give God. Okay, I pray for half an hour a day. Half an hour. Don't you know what Jesus said to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Could you not tarry in prayer for an hour? Don't you know the spiritual principle is this? An hour a day keeps the devil away. Uh, you, can't you pray for an hour? Okay. I, 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 pray for an, I pray for an hour a day. An hour a day. Don't you understand the principle of tithing? Don't you realize that it's more than simply about money? That it's giving God a tenth of everything? There are 24 hours in a day. Can you not give God a tenth of the day in prayer? 2.4 hours? <laughs> okay, I pray for 2.4 hours a day. 2.4 hours a day. What's wrong with you? Don't know that Paul says to pray without ceasing. (laughs) You see, the genius about that attack is it's never enough. It's never enough. But you know, he finds our uniquenesses and then he attacks us on those at the beginning. And, uh, And and the thing about Satan, Jesus describes him as a liar and the father of lies. That means he's a very good liar. And Satan's best lies are half-truths. Have you noticed that? So, you know, when I'm starting a new thing, when I've got vision, we're just beginning something. You know, the enemy, he he never so far has come and whispered in my ear, Mike, how could God use you? God's not going to use you. Look at yourself. You're anorexic. He's never done that. Because if he did, I would pause, I would think, I would look down, and I would say, no. Because <laughs> that's just never going to happen with me. So do you know what he does? Do you know what he does? He says, Mike, God couldn't use you. How could God use you? You're administratively incapable. You're incompetent. Your team despair of you. Do you know, I, I, there's, there's, there's one There's one person here, uh, Taryn, who, who, she was my PA years ago. And when she came to tell me she wasn't going to be my PA anymore, she sat me down and Taryn said to me, this was her exact words. She said, Mike, I love you, but I just can't work with you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're still great friends. And, um, but, but, you know, so, and the thing is, when, when Satan comes and whispers that in my ear, there's an element, there's just a smidgen of truth in that. So I think, oh, he's right. I'm not very good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not John Wright. I can't do that. I can't stick to something. And So God couldn't use me. Now, because the first thing's right, that doesn't mean that the second thing's right. And, and so look how Nehemiah responds. He says, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. What does he do? He turns it into prayer. He doesn't argue with the thoughts. Argue with the enemy, you'll always lose. Take it to the Father. Take it to the Lord. Let him defend you. You just stay obedient. You just stay doing what you do. If you get through the first attack, here's the second attack in verse 6 of chapter 4. So we we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against, up, uh, fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. What's the second attack? It's the full frontal assault. You're in the middle of, of, the, of, the, of the, the ministry. The wall has reached half its height. You started Sunday meetings. And people are starting to come to the Lord. And you're just starting to form home groups and, and all of that stuff. And then comes the full frontal assault. Suddenly, everything seems to go wrong. The money dries up. Uh, people get sick. People start arguing with you. People disagree with the vision. They start leaving. And the temptation at that point, honestly, is to say, I must be outside God's will, because if I was in God's will, it would be easier than this. All of this is coming. This must mean that that we're not being obedient. You know what? That is the sure sign you're in God's will. The enemy isn't going to attack if if you're being ineffective. Jesus promised us. He promised us persecutions and trials. He promised us that sometimes it would be hard. Now, I'm not saying we don't question. I'm not saying we don't, we're not reflective. Uh, it's, it's not about that. But I've seen too many followers of Jesus uh, give up uh, because they misunderstand the the attack of the enemy as the will of God. And we mustn't get those two confused. And I come into land with, um, I'm trying to do this very quickly, um, with the third and final attack, which you see in Nehemiah chapter 6. And uh, uh, this is, I'll read it. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I love Nehemiah. He's such a lad, isn't he? Um, and then four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, um, they, they send this note. That's, I, I won't read it now, there's, there's not really the time, uh, saying a whole load of stuff about they're going to be in trouble. And then he says, I sent them this reply Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? <laughs> What's the, th- what's the third and final temptation? It's when the wall's been built, but the gates have been about to be put in place. You're nearly there. The, the thing that God gave you, the thing that God broke your heart over, the, the vision God gave you, it's, it's established. It's all going well. It's virtually there. The, at that point, the critical temptation, the critical attack that you have to beware, it's the most insidious of the lot, is the temptation to compromise. And first of all, it can be the temptation to compromise on the vision God gave you. You know, it can be the temptation to compromise and to say, you know what, we've got 90%. Hey, just for a bit of peace. Because at this stage, you're exhausted. You know, when you've been battling and fighting and going for it for years, there can be sometimes often a physical exhaustion, often an emotional exhaustion, and sometimes a spiritual exhaustion. And it's at that point that you can say, you know what, I, I, just, I, just, I just don't want to fight this anymore. we got 90%. It's just a bit. We have no right to give away anything. 90, 95% obedience is not good enough. We have, we have to go with everything God's shown us. And one of the things, I'll be honest with you, uh, about our Soul Survivor festivals now, I, I often, I do often get, get letters. Uh, there was one last year from uh, a pastor of, of, of a church saying our, our young people came to Soul Survivor this summer. They, they had a great time. They came back changed. Uh, four, four non-Christians came with them. They all met Jesus and they're following the Lord. But I need to tell you, uh, that I'm not going to allow them to come this year to Soul Survivor unless you can give me an assurance that you're going to tone, tone down the Holy Spirit stuff. Uh, because because I, 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 we don't, I don't think it's biblical. We don't want that. We don't want our kids into that. And do you know, I, I, a fair bit of that comes. And do you know there's a little temptation occasionally when I'm tired <laughs> to say, you know what, we, we've got most of what we want. We can just tone it down a bit. How do you tone the Holy Spirit down a bit? Tell me, because I haven't discovered that yet. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that way we'll get a whole bigger cross-section of young people. Bringing, more people will come to Jesus. And, and, and you know, it's at that point that I have to remember, what did you say when we started? One of the main things, one of our main reasons was, was to, to model to model naturally supernatural ministry and life to the next generation. And it's like, how, could, how can I compromise on what God's told me to do? It's like, that's, it's not an option. But you know what? When you're tired, when you've got most of it, that's the point. And first of all, the temptation is to compromise on the vision God has given you. But the second thing, and this is the place where it happens, is to compromise in your personal life. Is to com- And this is, this is at this point that many mess up and fall. It's at this point. And it's at this point. I, I've wondered for ages, why is it when so many leaders, when, when, when they see everything they've dreamed, when it all comes to pass, when, when it's all happening, they, they do something utterly stupid and mess up. What is what is wrong with them? You know, honestly, my my second biggest fear that I have, and I'm being really honest here, is that I just screw it up before I finish. That's my second biggest fear. My biggest fear is that there might come a time when I stop being scared that I might screw it up before I finish, because that's when I'm in real danger. You know, I want to finish well. Like, I, w- I don't want to finish bringing disgrace to Jesus, my Lord. And if you want to do that, you have to at the beginning put things in place. You have to put things in place. You know, it, and and part of it is 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 the whole it's maintaining intimacy with the Lord, maintaining intimacy with Jesus and with other people around you, a healthy intimacy. And 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 for for Elijah. Don't you find it amazing that after he won that great battle at Mount Carmel, he goes down into the desert and he just wants to kill himself? He just wants, he says, I'm the only one left. I'm all on my own. Everyone's gone. And then the Lord, what does the Lord do? He, he feeds him and he gives him rest. You know, sometimes the Lord's very natural. Sometimes the Lord knows our physical needs. And then he takes him up from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb. And then, he, and then comes the earthquake, the wind and the fire. But the, the Lord was not in either at that time, and then came the gentle whisper and At that point, Elijah goes down the mountain, and the first thing he does is he finds elisha. You see if God meets with him in the gentle whisper, we need to learn to, to walk in intimacy with the Lord when it 's not earthquake, wind, and fire, when it 's not conferences, festivals, and Sundays at church. We need to learn to walk in intimacy with him, and then we need to, to cooperate with God as he puts us in a family of people who love us and we love and where there's honesty as well as love. I, I tell you, I wouldn't have survived and I wouldn't be surviving now if I didn't have around me. I work with my closest friends. I really do. I, work, I it's a joy. And they know they know all about me. There are some of them, they've been with me for 25 years. There's this couple called Ken and Jeannie. There's another lady called Liz. They've been with me for over 25 years. They've seen me at my worst and they're still there. They're still there. They still love me. Do you know what a security that is? It's an amazing security. I, I think before I finish, I just need to... Um, be honest with you about about a time that I fell that I messed up a little while ago. I feel like've we yeah, I hope this is all right I, um, We finished the festivals, and you know at our festivals it's it 's twenty days of nightmare, uh, wonderful nightmare, but nightmare and uh, and you know uh, i 'm single and all of that, and and at the end, everyone goes away, and then I'm driving home on my own to go back to my house on my own, and then suddenly, the adrenaline goes, and I'm just left with me, and it's like, I go home, and it's like, I'm going up the wall, and there was this this one time, I was just like, just desperate, longing, And, and you start thinking, you know what, and this is how sin works, you know, I've given out so much, I've served all this time, just a little bit of a little, it can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. And then uh, it was three years ago. I am, um, I shouldn't have done it. I was on my home on my own. I was lonely. I picked up the phone and I dialed a number. And a young lady answered the phone. And I talked to her for a bit. And then I put the phone down. And 45 minutes later, there was a knock on my door. I answered the door. And there was the Chinese takeaway for two, for one. What did you think I was going to say? <laughs> there were a few of you there thinking, how do I react? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. He's going to. He didn't. He didn't. You were, you were getting worried. Yeah, you were. You were. You were. You were. You were. But you know what? It's the same principle, guys. It's actually the same principle. It's actually the same principle. Do you know what I, what I do now? I'll I finish with this. This is the absolute truth. Um, I was coming home from a meeting, and I knew it was going to be a bad night. And I came off the motorway, and it was about 11.15 at night. And I thought, if I turn right, I'll go to my house. And there's this... Older couple in my church. Been, they, they, their kids were in my youth group, uh, uh, called Dennis and Miriam Lazelle. And I thought, if I go left, Dennis and Miriam's house is there. And I thought, but it's 11:15 at night, and they're old, and uh, I, I can't. And I thought, you know what? I'll just drive by, and if there's lights on downstairs, I might knock on the door. I drove by, and there was lights on downstairs. So I went, parked the car, knocked on the door. Miriam answered the door. And immediately she said, Mike, how lovely to see you. Come in. I'm just making a cup of cocoa for Dennis before we go to bed. Come and join us. And I thought something stronger would be nice. <laughs> Christians. Um <laughs> but nothing strong was on offer, so I accepted the cocoa, and I went there, and Dennis was in the front room, and he said, Mike, how lovely to see you, and we started talking about what he had been watching on TV, and and what they were doing in their retirement, and all this stuff, and, and everything, and then Miriam came in with the cocos, we drank the cocos, we chatted about nothing much, and then at the end, Dennis said, well, it's now 12 o'clock, it's very late, why don't we just say a prayer and go our separate ways. So we stood there and they put their arms around me and then they said, Lord, I thank you for our friendship. I thank you that we can have this time. Bless us now as we go to bed. Amen. And then they said goodbye and I got into the car and I drove off. And do you know, in all the time, that 45 minutes I was with them, they didn't ask me once how I was. And yet, as I drove off, the burden had lifted and I was just, it was just completely different. It was broken. Because a few weeks earlier, I'd shared in passing in a talk that sometimes when I come home from something on my own, it can be a little bit difficult. And after that service, Dennis and Miriam shuffled up and they said to me, now listen, young man. <laughs> do you love it when they call you young man at your age? <laughs> listen, young man, you, you, that must never happen again. We don't care what time it is. If you're ever feeling like that, you come and knock on our door, even if it's three o'clock in the morning. They didn't ask me how I was, because they didn't need to. They knew exactly why I turned up. And they were, for me, just what I needed them to be. I didn't need counsellors. I didn't need psychotherapy at that point. I just needed... (laughs) (laughs) And the psychotherapies never worked anyway. (laughs) What I needed, what I needed was friends. What I needed was people to be normal with me. And that's what we all need. God gives us intimacy with himself. And he gives us intimacy with one another. He calls us to be family. And that's the best antidotes I know. Elijah had the still small voice. And then he had the gift of Elisha. And the two together are what kept him going. So, let God break your heart. Let him, they that sow in tears will reap in joy. We all want to reap in joy. The necessary precondition is sowing in tears. It's identification that leads to agony. And that's what provides true spiritual authority. Then let the vision gestate. Let it grow in you. Then tell it as it is. Don't just say the details. Say the big picture, but don't forget the details. Then draw beside you and around you a team where you love each other and you love Jesus together and you go on adventure and you glory in your differences and you glory in each other's uniquenesses and you tell your team what you value about them regularly. then make sure you stay close to him and you stay close to them and that you do life with him and with them. And then the chances are you'll see the vision come to fruition and you'll cross the finishing line to the glory of his name. That's what I long for you. That's what I long for me. And that's what Jesus longs for all of us. What we're going to do now is we're going to ask him to meet with us by his spirit.